This is uh, from Dogen's Shobogenzo, <coughs> fascicle titled Shohaku Makusa, which is, which is translated as refrain from all evil whatsoever. Rakuten, the governor of Hangchao, trained under meditation master Dorin of Choka. One day, Rakuten asked Dorin, what is the major intention of the Buddha Dharma? Dorin replied, Refrain from all evil whatsoever, uphold and practice all that is good. Rakuten remarked, If that's all there is to it, even a child of three years old knows how to say it. Dorin replied, Though a child of three-year-old can say it, there are old men in their 80s who still cannot put it to practice. Upon hearing this, Put this way, Raghatan then bowed in gratitude. So today, after this Teisho, we're going to hold Fusatsu ceremony. Some of you know what it is. Uh, I will talk about it uh, for a few minutes. Um, we try to hold Fusatsu ceremony once a month. It's a traditional part of practice. And it's a time where we get together and recite together the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. And we make a full bow for each of the precepts. And it has nothing to do with Jukai ceremony, per se. So we all are doing it together, some of us have taken Jukai and some of us have not, yet there is a clear understanding that the practice, or to practice the Buddha Dharma means to uphold and work with the precepts. So it's not something that begins when we actually go through taking Jukai. There, is, there are many reasons why we take Jukai, but regardless of that, we all have to know the precepts and do our best to uphold them. And it's called Sila Paramita, right? Sila Paramita, one of the six Paramitas, or the perfection of morality, right? It's the second Paramita. First one is Dana Paramita, practice of giving or the perfection of giving. And paramita is the practice of perfecting a trait, an ability, inherent potential. But it is also understood as a raft that ferries a practitioner to living a life of an awakened, as an awakened living. And so the intention of practicing and perfecting the six paramitas is to free ourselves, to free us from the bondage created by our karma and lead us in a direction of living a life that is true, wholesome, inclusive, very different than the way we are used to living our lives. So the paramitas ferry us from the delusion of being separated, which is actually the catalyst for our destructive behavior, 
to the realization of equanimity, which naturally leads to or yields compassionate actions and being of service to others. And it's quite clear that the way we lead our lives as human beings leaves a trail of destruction and harm. It's also clear that life based on accumulations and achievements ultimately does not deliver a deep sense of contentment and ease. It often leads to greater disappointments since the hope that it will end the sense of dissatisfaction or unease keeps getting crushed against the rocks of reality or the way things are. Well, the question is, do we learn from our own experiences, individually and collectively? And do we raise the intention, tenacity, courage, to go against the grain of our harmful patterns of behavior and act differently? Do what may not feel comfortable even painful. To do what is right does not mean to feel good about it all the time. In this dialogue brought up in the Shobogenzo, Rakuten is asking, what is the major intention of the Buddha Dharma? Doran replied, refrain from all evil whatsoever, uphold and practice all that is good. The major intention. Simple and to the point. But the way we understand the word intention is critical to the way we will or we are upholding the practice. Or the way we understand what he's trying to tell us. You know, the uh, etymology of the word intention may be quite different than the common usage of it. The Latin origin of the word is intendere, which translates as to stretch out, to lean forward, to strain. Not quite the way we use it, actually. And it means to push ourselves beyond the comfort zone and venture out to unfamiliar territories. Now, the word, or the, the original translation of this is dynamic, action-oriented, not just a statement as we may see it or use it. And it's about what we do, not what we say we will do. You know, so when we enter UNGO, for example, three months intensified training period, we fill out a form read it aloud in front of the Sangha, make commitments, here is what I am going to do. And it is done for the sole purpose of raising the intention. But if the word we utter do not follow with actions, very specific kind of actions, there is no intention, just lip service, just going through the motion. You know, and when we do koans, when we do ango after ango after ango, 
there is a danger of falling into that groove of I'm just gonna go through this and uh, mat meet or match the requirements. And I know I need to stand up in front of that sheikh and read some stuff, so I'll do that. And then we'll see what happens. Right? And we'll see what happens is actually, we know exactly what happens or what will happen if this is the attitude we, we have or if this is the way we understand the word intention. But if intention means strive, then strive. Regardless of how it feels. Well, also the expectation that to strive will be easy is wrong expectation. To strive will be challenging. So to raise the intention means to go beyond what's comfortable. And also the other thing with that is that when we talk about doing something, for example, when we fill out a form, we write about it, we talk about it, we say it out loud to everybody. There is a sense as if we are actually doing something because we hear it, right? This ear is closest to this mouth. So I hear that I'm going to do something. Or maybe I'm already doing it. I just heard about it. And there's a huge difference or gap between saying something and doing it. In the saying, there's no doing. In the doing, the saying is inherent. So better say nothing and do than say a lot and do very little. As in the saying, too many words impede wisdom. They can also impede action. No, so words can be a barrier, but how we interpret words can also be a hindrance in maintaining commitments, resolve. And if we fall into the trap of success and failure, that's what's going to happen. If we, if we measure the doing based on success and failure. Now, raising and actualizing intentions has nothing to do with succeeding or failing. And so it should not be measured by the outcome. It's only about continuous doing to the best of our ability without judging moment by moment. How am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? Right? Because we fall down and we get up and we fall down and we get up. Right? And we only fall down once and we only get up once. Only this time. This is all that's happening, but if I bring past falling downs into this falling down, then getting up is a lot more difficult. And we become very discouraged, very jaded about life, about our practice, about human beings. 
But it doesn't quite work that way because where is, where are the past falling downs? Where are they? How can they prevent us from getting up now? They can. If I pile them up on top of myself, on my shoulders, on my body actually, when I'm flat on my face, and it's a huge burden to lift up. I might as well stay down. It's easier. So to not judge means to drop the one who feels as if he or she is verified by success, failure, or other measurement tools. You know, to, to let go of the one who lives and dies by relative and provisional standards. And when this one is dropped, it becomes much easier to actually uphold intentions, to actualize intentions. Because it's only about this moment, right now, am I doing it. It's very clear. So Master Dorin says that the major intention of the Buddha Dharma is to refrain from all evil whatsoever and to uphold and practice all that is good. Now, How do we hear that when we understand that the word intention is only about striving? To strive when refraining from all evil whatsoever. To strive when upholding and practicing all that is good. And these are the three pure precepts. I vow to not create harm. I vow to do good. I vow to do good for others. And it's not by chance that the three pure precepts appear between, comfortably between, the three treasures and the ten grave precepts. It's not just happens to be there. It doesn't show up this way. It actually, it is fueled by the three, the three treasures because we help each other. We help each other look through the barrier we have created, that we are creating, get in touch with what is real, what is true, support each other. You can get up. I know you fell down. You can get up. But you have to get up with your own two feet, with your own two hands. Because they work fine. And I'm here to help you. I'm here to remind you that your four limbs work very well. And you have plenty power to do what you need to do. So, you know, to support each other does not mean to necessarily lean against one another. Sometimes to support each other means to tell somebody, get up, now. Because you care, right? Because you care and because you know that if we don't trust that we have the ability to get up, we're not going to get up. And we convince ourselves that that's true. 
So this gives rise, Buddha Dharma Sangha gives rise to the three pure precepts. And the way we uphold the three pure precepts is to work with each of the ten great precepts. It begins with Janna Paramita, perfection of meditation, of Zazen. The practice of Janna gives rise to Prajna Paramita, wisdom. And Prajna naturally manifests through Sila Paramita, through morality, upholding the precepts. All begins with Zazen, looking and seeing what's true, what's real, or maybe seeing what's not, seeing what is made up right now, and how am I perpetuating what is made up right now, what kind of thoughts I believe, what kind of emotions I use to fortify the thoughts I believe. And how all this works very well to keep me on the ground when I fall down. And it's also a way to look at the three treasures. Through Zazen we realize our original face. Through embracing the Dharma we embody wisdom. And by maintaining a Sangha we practice morality through upholding the precepts with each other. Someone said to me that he feels, you know, the Sangha is very helpful when he's outside doing whatever he's doing because he said, I just think about the Sangha, it makes me feel lighter, happier, more connected to people. And this is, and it works that way actually. When we really embrace the Sangha, when we really show up without feeling the need to cover up the face with makeup, show up naked, and trust that it's okay, then wisdom is nurtured. And when wisdom is nurtured, stupidity is stalled. You know, when we, when we give food to habits, we take away food from wisdom. When we feed wisdom, we take food away from habits. So when we strive to do things differently, we actually intercept and interfere with the habitual force in us. So when we want to say something and we don't say it, because we realize that's not very beneficial or helpful or maybe even harmful, if I say it, if I say it, I strengthen the habit. I do not refrain from all that is evil. I don't strive. But if I strive at that moment and don't say anything and keep quiet, I refrain from all that is evil. And I practice good. And I nurture Bodhicitta. It's not about easy or difficult, actually. It's just about 
understanding what intention means and understanding that intention means to strive to do and not to be pulled by automatically. You may remember in the commentary uh, from I think second chapter of the Diamond Sutra, maybe, no, maybe fourth chapter, uh, Sufan says, the Buddha puts on his robes and take up, that's the first chapter, take up his bowl to uphold the precepts of morality. He washes his feet and takes his seat to enter meditation. Thus, does morality give birth to meditation, and meditation to wisdom. Also, by entering the city, when he goes to beg, with his robes and bowl, he goes from the noumenal to the phenomenal, into the phenomenal. And the noumenal, just to clarify, is naked reality as it is, not as seen through our perceptions, through our six senses. So, and that's actually to turn the attention to what was before him, right? When he, when he goes to sit, he turns his attention to what was before him, as we do every time we sit and meditate. So, and he goes from that, from what was before, to the phenomenal, to what is, to functioning and working with moment-by-moment moment occurrences, some of which we like, some of which not very much, some are favorable conditions, some unfavorable conditions. So he goes from the noumenal into the phenomenal. By washing his feet and taking his seat afterwards, he goes from the phenomenal into the noumenal again. It is only by remaining unattached to the noumenal as well as the phenomenal, undifferentiated prajna can be realized. And only when undifferentiated prajna is realized, we can practice sila, paramita. We can practice and uphold the precepts. It doesn't mean we have to wait. It just means that this is the process, and the process, in a way, feeds itself. So if we do pay attention to the way we practice, and we do strive moment by moment, on the cushion, off the cushion, then one thing gives birth to another and it's all connected. All we have to do is trust it and strive to maintain it. And this is how our daily practice is maintained. From the phenomenal, we dive into Zazen and experience the noumenal through Samadhi. Then we enter the phenomenal again and again after having some experience of immersion in the Absolute, we are better able to express wisdom within the relative phenomena. Or we are better able to not get bogged down by the phenomenal. And naturally uphold the Bodhisattva precepts. And the precepts themselves are simple, right? They only ask that we refrain from doing harm and we act in ways that are benefiting others and the world we live in. That's all it's asking us to do. So when Master Dorin said to Rakuten, 
that this is the major intention of the Buddha Dharma, Rakutan replied, well, if it's so simple, a three-year-old can say that or do that or understand that. Right? All he heard, when, when he heard those words, all he heard was, stay out of trouble, do some good. But what he did not understand is the gravity of, or the true meaning of the word intention. Oh, I understand what that is. I know what it's about. I can do that. How do you know? What does it mean to do that? What does it mean to understand that? You know, to understand intention, to understand how karma operates, and those two together, is to understand that it's a lifelong practice. There's a very light way of seeing it, actually. I remember some years ago, we had somebody who practiced with us and he went through a rough patch in his life, experienced strong wave of habitual patterns, which he said made it almost impossible for him to uphold the practice. And after he got through that rough patch, he said, I underestimated what we're up against when we try to stay on the path and uphold the practice and the precepts. And I think we underestimate. I think it was very true, his, his, his realization. We underestimate because we think I'm practicing, so then things are going to become easier. Or I'm no longer going to experience these kinds of issues. I'll experience issues, but not those kinds. I'm done with I've graduated those. But we don't graduate anything. We do get better at probably not expecting some things to not come and other things to come. Not expecting outcomes, not expecting what we will encounter. Or being okay with not knowing what we encounter, within or without. You could be fine for five, ten years with certain things that you thought, well, I'm done with this. I used to have issues with all of a sudden it hits you. And you realize there it is again. It doesn't go anywhere. When we're triggered, we're triggered. So Rakuten also underestimated the actual meaning of it. And that's why Doreen told him. Even if, so though a three-year-old child can say it, there are old men and women in their 80s who still cannot put it into practice. And I think we can agree that there are many people out there who could use practice or maybe even cannot put it into practice. And commenting on this, Dogen said, to think that a three-year-old child cannot give voice to the Buddha Dharma or to think that a three-year-old child is cute is the height of foolishness. 
This is because clarifying what birth is and clarifying what death is constitutes the most important matter for a Buddhist practitioner. The master, out of pity, could not give up on Rakuten and went on to say, though a three-year-old child can say it, there are old men in their 80s who still cannot put it into practice. The heart of what he said exists in what a child of three can say, and this we must thoroughly investigate. Also, there is the practice which 80-year-olds may not be doing, but which we must diligently engage in. And both are true. Yes, a, three, a three-year-old, we as a three-year-old, were able to say it. Actually, we forgot it. We were born able to say it. Yet, we need lifetime of practice to put what we know into everyday life practice. What we need is to learn how to embody the way we were born. That we forget. We knew it. We know it. We just know how to put it into practice. And he says, this refrain from all evil whatsoever, that's Dogen, is not something that worldly people are apt to think of before concocting what they're doing, what they're going to do. Because we are moved automatically by habits. So we don't think about, well, if I say this, will it cause harm? If I do this, will it cause harm? There's no place for this to even arise because it is so knee-jerk reaction, automatic. Then we're just taken by the winds of our habits, think that way again and again, get trapped by that, cause harm, wreak havoc, and then have to go back and pick up the pieces. That's why we have to see that, we have to understand, we have to learn from that. He says, the karmic consequences of our good and bad actions are what we are training with. I think this is a very sobering statement. The karmic consequences of our good and bad actions are what we are training with. This is it. So, whatever happened, most of it we have no clue about up to this point, Right, whether it's our lifetimes, lifetime or before that, has left karma behind, which we have to deal with. But what he's saying is that this is what we practice. Not just deal with it, it's what we practice. So it's not just I have to tolerate my karma. I have to use my karma to awaken. In the same way that we use all the ingredients of our lives to cook the best life ever, rather than try to borrow from somebody else's life, someone else's, someone else's ingredients. I don't like my ingredients. You didn't choose them. But you can choose how you cook 
with those ingredients. And you could cook the most amazing life from those ingredients. How? Figure it out. Find out. Be creative. Stop comparing. Stop judging. Use it all. You know, from the first day we enter this practice, actually, we, we vow, we make a vow to be fearless bodhisattvas and refrain from harm and do good. Even while our minds concoct all kinds of stories about ourselves and about other people. Even when the forces of our karma operates wildly in us. <clears throat> what does it mean to be a fearless bodhisattva? Chongyam Trumpa Rinpoche wrote about the daily work of a bodhisattva. And I find it very clear and actually sobering. I'd like to share some of it here. He said, those who take the bodhisattva vow make one simple commitment. To put others first, holding nothing back for ourselves themselves. The Bodhisattva vow is the commitment to put others before one's self. It is a statement of willingness to give up one's own well-being, even one's own enlightenment for the sake of others. As a Bodhisattva, it is simply a person who lives in the spirit of that vow, perfecting the qualities known as the six paramitas. Taking the Bodhisattva vow implies that instead of holding our own individual territory and defending it tooth and nail, we become open to the world that we're living in. It means we are willing to take on a greater responsibility, immense responsibility. In fact, it means taking a big chance. It definitely means taking a chance because maybe I think that up to now, life has disappointed me. People have disappointed me. That's why we have to develop courage. We have to take a chance. It's a big part of practice. And he says, by joining this tradition, but joining this tradition also makes tremendous demands on us. We no longer are intent on creating comfort for ourselves. We work with others. This implies working with our, our other as well as the other other. Our other is our projections and our sense of privacy and longing to make things comfortable for ourselves. The other other is the phenomenal world outside, which is filled with screaming kids, dirty dishes, confused spiritual practitioners, and assaulted sentient beings. Very well put. All the stuff we don't like. That's what we, this is actually where we have to go into willingly with our eyes open. We have, we have the tremendous power, he says, to change the course of the world's karma. So in taking the Bodhisattva vow, we are acknowledging that we are not going to be instigators of further chaos, of further chaos and misery in the world, but we are going to be liberators, Bodhisattvas, inspired to work on ourselves as well as with other people. 
there is tremendous inspiration in having decided to work with others. We no longer try to build up our own grandiosity. We simply try to become human beings who are genuinely able to help others. That is, we develop precisely that quality of selflessness which is generally lacking in our world. Following the example of, example of the Buddha, who gave up his kingdom to dedicate his time to working with sentient beings, we are finally becoming useful to society. We become useful to society. It's a huge undertaking, huge undertaking that we, that often, in a way, every cell of our body is telling us, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't give up on yourself. Screaming at you, yelling at you, how dare you want to give up on me? But we have to go through that. There's no way around feeling this way. And it says, the work of a bodhisattva is without credentials. We could be beaten, kicked, or just unappreciated, but we remain kind and, and willing to work with others. It is totally non-credit situation. It is truly genuine and very powerful. And actually that means, you know, to give to the world our greatest talent. So in a way, to draw this amazing drawing, and to give it to the world without signing your name on it. That's what that means. To do just for the sake of doing. To give just for the sake of giving. To want nothing in return. No wonder we don't have that many people flocking to Zen practice. It's not a good selling point, right? It says, in order to drop our self-centeredness, which both limits our view and clouds our actions, it is necessary for us to develop a sense of compassion. Traditionally, this is done by first developing compassion towards oneself, then towards somebody very close to us, and finally towards all sentient beings, including our enemies which is really what we do on a, on a cushion, on, in Zazen. We develop, well, we get to know that one here and develop a deep sense of compassion, non-judgmental attitude towards oneself, total acceptance of the mess, of my mess, and then learning to do that, we can do it for another, and another, and another, and then for everybody. That's why it's a practice. It's training. We train ourselves to be compassionate. This is usually we are in a stalemate, stalemate with the world. He is going to say, he is going to say he's sorry to me. He's going to say to me first that he's sorry. Or I'm going to apologize to him first. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to wait for him to say sorry, him or her, before I open my mouth and say something. But in becoming a bodhisattva, he says, we break that barrier. We do not wait for the other person to make the first move. We make the decision 
to, to make the first move. Even when others spit on us and ridicule us and reject us. And it is an incredible sense of freedom when you realize that you can be good and do good even if most people do the opposite. The point of making the first move by taking the Bodhisattva vow is not to convert people to our particular view, necessarily. The idea is that we should contribute something to the world simply by our own way of relating, by our own gentleness. That's a great thing to give to the world. Gentleness. Kind heart, light-heartedness. We should give that to the world because it's very much needed. And then he says, by taking the Bodhisattva vow, we open ourselves to many demands. If we are asked to help, we should not refuse. If we are invited to be a parent, we should not refuse. In other words, we have to have some kind of interest in taking care of people, some appreciation of the phenomenal world and its occupants. It's not an easy matter. It requires that we not be completely tired and put off by people's heavy-handed neurosis, ego dirt, ego puke, or ego diarrhea. Relate to that, right? Instead, we are appreciative and willing to clean up for them. It is a sense of softness whereby we allow situations to take place in spite of little inconveniences. We allow situations to bother us, to overcrowd us, we don't run away to where it's comfortable. In fact, we run into where it's uncomfortable. That's intention. Or that's what intention ought to be. We go towards where it hurts. Completely counterintuitive. The usual, it's almost ending. The usual human instinct is to feed ourselves first and to make friends with others if they can feed us. This could be called ape instinct. But in the case of the Bodhisattva vow, we are talking about a kind of superhuman instinct, which is much deeper and more full than that. Inspired by this instinct, we are willing to feel empty and deprived and confused. But something comes out of our willingness to feel this way, which is that with that we help others, right? You can help somebody else at the same time that you feel this way. So there is room for our confusion and chaos and ego-centeredness. They become stepping stone. Even the irritation that occurs in the practice of a bodhisattva path can become a way of confirming our commitment. By taking the bodhisattva vow, we actually present ourselves as the property of sentient beings. Depending on the situation, we are willing to be a highway, a boat, a floor, a house. We allow other sentient beings to use us in whatever way they choose. As the earth sustains the atmosphere and the outer space accommodates the stars, galaxies, and all the rest, we are willing to carry the burdens of the world. Do you want to leave? 
You can change your mind. But it is necessary and very important to avoid idiot compassion, he says. If one handles fire wrongly, he gets burned. If one rides a horse badly, he gets thrown. There is a sense of earthy reality. Working with the world requires some kind of practical intelligence. If we do not work intelligently with sentient beings, quite possibly our help will become addictive rather than beneficial. So for the benefit of sentient beings, we need to open ourselves with an attitude of fearlessness because of people's natural tendency towards indulgence, sometimes it is best for us to be direct and cutting. The Bodhisattva's approach is to help others help themselves. We help others awaken to their original self. You don't give them a self. You don't give them what they are. How you do that? Upaya. Sometimes a hug. Sometimes yell at somebody. Wake up. Because you are squandering your life. Because there is no tomorrow. Wake up now. Stop creating more of the same. And that's compassion, that's love. That's what Vasatsu is about, that's what Jukai is about, that's what our practice is about. That was what I just read, was a job description, quite lengthy job description of a Bodhisattva. Give up on yourself. And then you find out who you are. Then you discover that you are far greater than you ever, than you ever imagined. But if you don't give up, you won't experience it. So we're going to hold Fusatsu. I just want to say a couple of words to finish about Fusatsu. The word comes from the Sanskrit word posada, which means to fast, to purge the body of harmful toxins that we have accumulated as a result of consuming unwholesome foods. And in this case, for us, this means to de deprive the body of physical food. It means it's like the body, the mind can also be intoxicated by accumulation of harmful impurities through unobserved thinking and unwholesome words and actions that we exchange with each other as human beings. So in, in this context of practice, the word fusatsu has two meanings. To nurture the mind with wholesome nourishment and to deprive the mind of unwholesome nourishment. Which leads to avoiding all that is harmful, all evil whatsoever, and then to do all that is good. Comes down to this. That's all we are required to do. Every day, wake up in the morning and we raise the intention. And remember, intention is action. Raise the intention to avoid doing harm 
and to do good.